you're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Well, Ephesians, it's Paul's letter from the Folsom Prison. You can hear the train a-coming. It's coming around the bend. Instead of hanging his head, he gets to writing. And he writes some letters to the churches that will later become a part of your Bible. And one of those letters is the letter to the Ephesian church, to the church in Ephesus. Sent by Tychicus, a trusted close friend who will hand deliver that letter. Then Tychicus will stand up in front of the church in Ephesus and read the letter all in one sitting. There was no TV back then, so nobody had anywhere to go. They're just, okay, let's. They would read that letter all in one sitting, and then they would get to copying. They would begin to copy that letter so every church in that region would have a copy of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. That's the letter that you hold in your hand this morning. That's the letter that we get to read and study. And so let's go back. Let's kind of review where we've come from, where we're at. We're eventually going to land in Ephesians chapter 3 that we just read. But let's kind of review where we've been at thus far. Paul begins the letter and he comes out of the gate really, really fast. Paul begins the letter and he says, God has always had a plan. Before this earth was ever created, before there was anything here, God had a plan. God had a plan and that plan included oceans and mountains and plants and animals and eventually human beings who would be created in his image, who would be created to worship him and to have a relationship with him. In fact, God's original intention is that heaven and earth would never be separated. Here's heaven, here's earth, and they're completely hooked together. There's no separation between God and Adam and Eve. He lives in a perfect relationship with them. And yet he knew that because of our own pride, our own selfishness, our own sin, we would break that relationship and push God away. Yet in a still small whisper, even after we would push God away in the garden, he begins to whisper to us, things are still going according to plan. God would use families. He would use a family struggling with infertility. He would use a son saved from an abortion. He would use younger kids instead of older kids. He would flip everything on its head to eventually make this family into a nation. This family would be judges and kings and prophets and priests, all the while whispering, things are still going according to plan. Ultimately, God would send his son in the person of Jesus Christ. He would be born in a manger and go through his ministry. He would pay the penalty, the the beating and the cross that we deserve for our sin. He would take that on himself. But not satisfied to just pay the penalty of our sin, not just satisfied to pay the punishment, then he he rose again. He rises again to then defeat death, to pave a way into eternity for us. And now Jesus is shouting, things are still going according to plan. It's okay. In that moment, when Jesus rises again, heaven and earth are reunited again. They're stuck back together, just like they were in the garden. We have complete and total access to God the Father sitting on the throne through his son, Jesus Christ. But God knew it wouldn't always feel that way. Wouldn't always feel like heaven and earth are back together because we still live on this side of eternity. And so he says, when you read the Bible, 
And when you pray and when you worship, I'm going to give you an advocate. I'm going to give you something called the Holy Spirit. It's going to place power inside of each one of those times. That when you're praying and when you're reading my word and when you're worshiping, it's going to whisper to you, things are still going according to plan. And even because of his grace and his love for us, when we get down in those really, really dark moments, when we get really, really down, things get really, really dark. We're either really, really sad about our own sin, our own addictions, our own family and friends, our life situation, whatever it is. The Holy Spirit whispers in our ear, things are still going according to plan. And that is Ephesians chapter 1. I told you, he got out of the gates really, really fast on this one. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, there are those of you who knew this plan. You've been studying this plan since the time you were kids. You're familiar with every single name, every single character, every single plot line. There's those of you who never heard this plan before. You grew up completely apart from this plan and had no idea it was even going on. He says, whether you were close up or whether you were far off, we all worship the same Jesus together. That temple that you've been to with all the different courts that kind of sort out all the different people, those are gone. Now we all have access to the Holy of Holies, not just the priests, not just the Levites. We all have access to Jesus Christ and the Holy of Holies. And so we worship together, whether you've been apart from this plan or you've known every little character all along the line your entire life. We all worship together. And then he turns a corner in Ephesians chapter 3. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We're going to take verses 7 and 8 in kind of two chunks. We're going to look at the big chunk, and then we'll look at the last phrase uh, later on this morning. So here's the first big chunk. I'll reread it again. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of the power, of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Notice what he says. This is about the gospel. It's about the good news. We think of the gospel as the good news of Jesus Christ, and that is true. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. By his grace and through faith, we're able to have access to the Father. We're able to know God through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That is the gospel. But really, I think what Paul is saying is not just what he said in chapter 3, not just what he said in chapter 2, but really everything he said thus far. Essentially, Paul is saying this plan of God from the beginning to the end and what I'm telling you here, what I told you in chapter one and what I'm still telling you, this gospel, that's all included in the good news. All of that is included in the good news of the gospel. Sometimes he calls it a plan. So this is God's plan. Sometimes he says this is God's will. Sometimes he says this is all kind of a mystery. Last week, and then next week, he'll refer to that whole timeline we just went over as a mystery, as pieces of the puzzle that we obtained that made the picture more and more full to see what God was up to in all those different eras. Next, he says, I'm a minister. 
He says, of the gospel, I became a minister. Now notice the names that he gives himself. Earlier in the letter, he refers to himself as an apostle, then a steward, now a minister. It's interesting how Paul will kind of strategically use different titles for himself for different purposes. When he says, I am an eyewitness to Christ, I'm like one of those 12 that hung out with Jesus for those three years. I have had an eyewitness encounter with Jesus himself. So he's going to pushes his apostolic authority, kind of his ability to talk authoritatively on these things because I'm an apostle. Last week he said, I'm a steward. It was that economic term. He says, I'm the, 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 Ched Fair, the Fed chairman. I'm, I'm controlling these things. I'm, I'm parceling this out. I'm budgeting this in sort of an economic term. But now he says, I'm a minister of the gospel. Now that may have some 2021 kind of baggage behind it. You may think well, like, oh, so Paul works at a church. Okay, I get it. Paul's a minister. He works at a church. In fact, this word here is he's a servant. He's a waiter. He says, I've come to wait tables to bring people the gospel. Not to be served, not to be the head of the restaurant, but just to serve the tables, to bring out what these people need, which is the gospel. But it's, in, it's interesting. He says, of this gospel, I became a minister. But then he ends with the phrase, the very least of all the saints. That's like saying I'm the worst of all the Christians. I'm the very least of all the saints. So why would Paul say that? Why would he say I'm an apostle and I'm a steward and I'm a minister, but I'm the very least of all the saints? Well, think back to Paul's story. If there was a Netflix series called The Church, in season one of The Church, Paul is a total villain. And I don't mean just like kind of a villain, like he's a mobster, right? So the first rule of running the mob is you sell the drugs, you don't take the drugs, right? When you start taking the drugs, that's when it goes downhill, right? You don't knock off people, you get people to knock off people, right? You don't actually hold the gun, right? They throw it in the river, that's how it keeps the plot line going. Paul gets a certificate to be able to arrest Christians, and then he holds the coats while the guys stone the Christians. Like, that is mob level, like, he has unlocked the mob badge in season one, right? You hate him in this Netflix series. He's a total villain. He literally kills Christians. So he's a bad, bad villain in season one. In season two, we come back, and there is a bright, shining light on the roads of Damascus. In fact, it strikes Paul, and he is blind. And Jesus confronts Paul, and he says, why are you persecuting me? Paul's shocked. Paul realizes what he's been doing all along. Everything he was doing in season one was wrong. Paul repents of his sin, turns from his sin, places his faith in Christ, and the blindness is gone. All of a sudden, we don't know. Is Paul going to be a villain still? Is he going to be a good guy? Like, which side is he on? And season two cuts off. Then COVID hits, and we don't know if season three is coming back. Is Netflix going to renew it? We don't know. So we're Googling. Are you going to renew it for season three? I don't know. Well, we're filming it, but it's a lot of COVID restrictions. It's going to take longer. So then BuzzFeed keeps telling you it's coming back. It's coming back for season three, but you don't know. So then you get on a little forum, a little chat room, like, what do you think Paul's going to do in season three? I don't know. Is he going to be guy is he gonna be a bad guy now don't act like you haven't done this you're laughing because you did this right because COVID hit and your favorite show got knocked off right and you're like oh, Netflix will renew it I promise if enough people watch it it will come back 
This is a season, essentially season three of the church. So in season three of the church, Paul is writing to encourage churches. He is definitely one of the good guys. He has repented of his sin and placed his faith in Christ. So now you see a little bit more of why Paul would say to the church in Ephesus, I'm the least. He remembers back to season one and the ending of season two. He says, that is why I'm the least of all the saints. So we see Paul writing this saying, I've been a minister of the gospel and the least of all. It brings us to two questions we're going to ask this morning. We're going to ask ourselves two questions based on these verses. The first question is this, do I have more confidence in God's grace or my ability? Evidently, Paul here in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, is putting all his confidence in God's grace. His confidence is no longer in his ability. So we need to ask ourselves that. Do we have more confidence in God's grace or my ability? See, Paul knew what it was like to have all the Bible knowledge in the world and yet live apart from Christ. Think about that. Everything that it took for Paul to write Ephesians chapter 1, that whole plan that we talked about at the beginning, Paul had all those files in his brain, and yet he did not know Christ. He knew what it was like to have all the Bible knowledge and live apart from the power of Christ and apart from God's grace. You think he had compassion when he would go to a synagogue and see just someone just like himself who had grown up reading the Hebrew and pouring over the scriptures and just pouring over a copy of Isaiah and completely missing Christ? Think he wasn't moved for that person? Think his heart didn't go out to that person to say, you have all this Bible knowledge, yet because you don't know God's grace, you're not actually a part of that story. You're not actually a part of God's plan. You haven't been introduced into the story. Here's a little AP Bible moment. I'm gonna ask you guys this. This will get to your inspiration theory. So all the Bible nerds, you can check in for a minute and then we'll go back to the sermon. Could Paul have written Ephesians chapter one unless he had all those files in there? Was God using all the files that have been placed in there all over all the years for him to be able to write Ephesians chapter one? Did the Holy Spirit simply light up the files that were already in his brain and begin to systematize them and put them into that order, ultimately culminating in Jesus Christ? Was Paul using something that he had learned before Christ to be the background and the expertise and the knowledge that he would use then to write these letters? Part of you are saying, God could have used a rock to write Ephesians chapter one. I'm not real worried about it, right? It is really based on God's grace, but it's a fun question to answer. To say, think about all the years apart from God's grace, all the knowledge that was in his head, and then all of a sudden, God's grace hits. He could sit down there and he can write an inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all of Ephesians chapter one, the mystery, the plan, the will of God. So what did he tell him? What was this mystery? What was this will? What was this plan that he told them? Notice the last phrase in verse 8. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. When we think about preach, we think about pulpits and suits and churches. You may be thinking about preaching as like, it's always three points in a poem. 
Always got to end with a tear-jerking story, right? If you're in a really super modern church, you got to wear skinny jeans, give like a TED talk about the Bible, what kind of week you've had, you know, that kind of thing. That's not preaching. The word he uses here is evangelithai, evangelism, to simply share, to evangelize, to share with others the grace that you've experienced. When you say I'm preaching to the Gentiles, I'm just sharing with them just evangelizing everywhere I go in whatever context I'm sharing the good news of the gospel with them. He mentions that he's sharing to Gentiles. So he's sharing with people that don't share his background. He's telling people the good news to those who may have never heard about God's plan. They don't have the same background, don't like the same things, maybe don't have the same hobbies, don't share the same interests, never worshiped on the same day. They kind of give lip service to some deities that Paul would have found completely detestable, part of town he never would have even walked in. They have different ways that they eat. They have different ways that they talk. They have different family structures. They have different everything. Yet Paul never saw that as something that he couldn't cross to share the gospel to evangelize, to share the gospel with those people. Did Paul share with the young man in the synagogue pouring over the scrolls and share with him the good news of the gospel? Absolutely. Did Paul share with people who were totally unlike him in every single way? Absolutely. So Paul shares with these people based on God's grace and not his own ability. Not based on background or the things they had in common but on the importance of telling people God's plan. So that brings us to our second question this morning. What version of God's plan do I tell? What's the version of God's plan that I tell? When Paul uses that phrase, it captures what it is to know Christ. To have studied his plan from before creation all the way leading up to Christ, all the way leading to now, The unsearchable riches of Christ is not just knowing that story, it's having experienced it. It's having those times of prayer, those times in God's word, those times of worship, where you feel that Holy Spirit inside of you. You feel God's presence right there in that very room. And so when he says, I preach to them the unsearchable riches of Christ, I preach to them all of it, all of what it is to follow Christ. You know, we've all studied apologetics. We've all studied apologetics. We've all studied how to defend our faith. Um, We've read books and taken classes, and those are really, really good things. We've gone down those rabbit trails on YouTube. Maybe it's a question about the Bible or the faith that you just didn't know about, and so you went on your own personal little rabbit trail to go and find an answer to that question. And always we're preparing for this, like, super intellectual Ivy League trained atheist, right? And he's going to be like walking down the street one day and overhear your conversation and be like, you know, I would believe in Jesus, but I just got a trouble with, you know, the Trinity or substitutionary atonement. You're like, this is my moment. Here we go. Like guns loaded. Like I'm ready, right? Like wait for this. I just watched a four minute YouTube clip about this. I am prepared. I'm ready to share with you this apologetic defense of the gospel. That's who we've been preparing for this whole time. But recent research has found the religiously unaffiliated, 
the atheists, the agnostic, and the nuns, the nothing in particular, are less likely than the general public to have a four-year college degree. Less likely than the general public to have a four-year college degree. You know who doesn't believe in Jesus? People who are hurting. People who are hopeless. People who are depressed. People who are living in constant conflict in their families and just constant drama every day of their lives. If they believe that God can't help them, Jesus has nothing for them, probably going to push him away. So is Paul talking to lots of different kinds of people? Absolutely. But what does he preach to them? The unsearchable riches of Christ. Here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of that instead of the unsearchable riches of Christ, in that moment, what we do as Christians We give them a watered-down version of the story. We take out the name of Jesus and we replace it with just an ambiguous God that could really mean anything. And then we just kind of make it positive and then we just kind of tell them like a generic anecdote from our life of when this generic, ambiguous God helped us out. And we throw an arm around them and we give them a tissue and then give them no compelling reason to follow Christ. No compelling reason to follow the unsearchable riches of Christ. None. We just want to get them through that moment with an ambiguous, I'll be praying for you, and that's it. And we move on to the next person. Because we're busy. We got things to do. We got places to go. We got people to see. Paul says, I'm talking to Gentiles who have nothing in common with me. But when I talk to them, I give them the unsearchable riches of following Christ. It's something that really hit home for me this week. I'm one of those people, I like to smooth everything over. I don't like things to be awkward. I don't like things to be weird. I thought, how many times have I smoothed over a conversation with just an ambiguous reference to God or an ambiguous anecdote to something God did in my life, and I left that person hanging having never told them about the unsearchable riches of following Christ, about by grace and through faith the life that I lead in the Holy Spirit. Even Drake's out here telling everybody God's plan, and I can't do it, right? I just kind of don't have the courage I just can't, can't do that. Instead, we soft pedal the gospel. But here's why I think we do it. I think we do that because we don't have confidence in God's grace. I think it's kind of all up to my ability and like my social instincts and the way that I can follow social cues or the way that I can kind of ease through a conversation. So I really rely on my own ability, that question one. I really am relying on my own ability and not God's grace. Instead, I want to lean into God's grace and say, God, in your grace, if I tell the story wrong, if I say the wrong thing, if somebody gets offended, if I, whatever it is, I need to preach 
the evangelist I share the unsearchable riches of following Christ. I want my friends and family to know a version of Christianity that is so compelling they would want to follow him. Not that it's just a positivity and platitudes and any old thing they could find at any Hobby Lobby, but the unsearchable riches of Christ. To know him. To really, really know him. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.